You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastorlarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are indeed intended to keep you focused and inspired and continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. I want to uh, just acknowledge and thank those of you who went into iTunes and left the rating and review this week. There were people like Dr. TIR, Cryptomatic, Blue Binliner, Tanny9, FIFA Awesome, Mark43, and Zeken. I know these are all a little bit funny names, but nevertheless, we do appreciate it and we do read all of the reviews. And I just want to say for those of you who think it's a little bit odd that I will repeat this message in the last few weeks, these reviews really do matter in the algorithms of iTunes and other podcast platforms. They help other investors to uh, discover the podcast and also they actually help you, the listener, because as the podcast grows, it does become easier for us to attract the best minds in finance to join our conversation. So if you haven't left a rating or review just yet, we would love if you would take five minutes to do so. And if you not sure how to do it, you can go to toptradersonplot.com forward slash review and there's a little guide for you. So in advance, thanks for doing it. Thanks for taking the time. Now, this week is actually a little bit different because we are recording a day early, namely Friday morning instead of our usual Saturday or Sunday. So if there's something dramatic happening today, the last day of the week, and you don't hear us talk about it, now you know why. With all of that said, Moritz, good morning. How are you? How are things where you are? I'm doing really well. Good morning, Niels. It's a bit colder today than uh, it used to be in the last couple of days. I think that is refreshing and a good change. It allowed me a good night's sleep. Other than that, I'm doing really fine. Thank you. Yeah, it seems also to be a little bit cooling off on uh, some of the uh, tech stocks we've seen in the last week or so. But what I wanted to just do in my little summary of the week, I do think that what came from the Fed this week is important. I mean, they're coming out trying to explain their plan. Essentially, they want to keep rates at zero until inflation is running at at a moderate pace, around 2% or a little bit above for some time, actually. You know, and they have been trying to create this 2% inflation for nearly 10 years, and they have completely failed, frankly. And um, they use this measure, Consumer Expenditures Price Index, which may or may not be the best index. I think there's some quite different ways of measuring inflation. But essentially, the PCE is currently at 1%. And since March 2009, the end of the great credit crisis, and of course, the Fed back then pledged that they would go for 2% inflation, the PC has only been at or above 2% for 30 out of the last 136 months. So not very often. Now, since the uh, Fed funds were dropped to essentially zero back in March, we haven't seen the PCE above 2%. And, you know, it is to me a little bit of a sign that the Fed might be losing control of, of this, um, but we'll see what their latest initiatives will do. The thing is, though, that with all, all that's going on right now, you know, people are changing their mood from maybe being a slightly optimistic 
level in the beginning of the year. I think COVID has turned many of us uh, more pessimistic in terms of our outlook, in terms of the way our everyday is, is happening. And um, when these things happen, when when the mood in the society goes negative, it doesn't really matter, I think, what the Fed does. I mean, whether the rates are zero or, or 25 basis points, people are not going to go out and and borrow unnecessary to buy things they don't really need. But anyways, it'll be interesting to follow what's going on on their side. More importantly, I think we want to know what's going on on your side, Moritz. Almost a full week, not quite, but it has been a little bit of an interesting week, I thought. Yes, I think it is. probably continues to be an interesting week, especially yesterday. It was an interesting day in the markets, as, as far as I can see. But breaking it down, I mean, I just had a quick look at my performance for this week. So this is Monday to Thursday because we're recording on a Friday morning. And my system is down about 50 basis points. And a lot of that, I had a couple of big moves. So a, a lot of that loss is coming from being on the wrong side of the WTI and energy markets. Uh, so yesterday, Brent and crude oil WTI moved significantly higher. WTI, the front month contract, is now trading north of 41 bucks. I think, you know, a couple of days back, we're below 37 or something. So, you know, it's again like, you know, a 10% move up. I'm still short. And, and obviously that produced some losses. But I also found some other positions such as, for instance, soybeans producing good returns. So in, in general, the observation that I can make that week is that there's more movement, more PL movement in the individual markets that I'm trading. Whereas in the previous weeks, I've just had a lot of like teeny tiny PL positions, like, you know, one market uh, going up two basis points, the other one producing, you know, three basis points of a loss. And then you repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's kind of like being quiet. This week seems to be a bit different. So let's see what comes out of that. I, I don't. I want to say that I dislike the fact normally when, you know, there's a little bit more movement going on and things start to become, they, they become on the move, so to say, it tends to be a good thing for my system. It's just that, you know, this week, yeah, positions have been in such way that I'm right now down 50 basis points, which of course doesn't mean that I'm going to be down 50 basis points by the end of today, which is the end of the week. I could be up 50 basis points quite easily, but you know, the status quo is, it's a slight loss. Yeah. No, I think we've seen also a little bit of a of a down uh, week this week. Obviously, there are some some sell-offs in tech stocks, meaning specifically the Nasdaq, which comes from an all-time high, and therefore it's against the prevailing trend the way we see it and our systems analyze it and so on and so forth. Although there is actually, when I look at equities, we have mixed positions. We're short some markets, we're long others, and, and so on and so forth and certainly seeing some overall reduction in the exposure in, in equities, maybe a little bit of an uptick in exposure and fixed income, and we'll see. But so besides the fact that, you know, okay, it's 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 a little bit of a down week maybe, and still a, a little bit of a down year, I wanted to take a moment to maybe broaden the perspective a little bit, because I actually think that there is something interesting going on at the moment in a bigger picture, which we don't necessarily talk about from a system point of view, but just if you look at the charts, I mean, you know, what's going on. First of all, I noticed by just looking back the last four or five years, because I think some investors are maybe a little bit surprised that it hasn't been a better year overall for trend followers, because 
it seems like there are a lot of things happening. There are a lot of trends. So I want to address that a little bit. And within the equity space, we talked about that last week, that it really equities has been really a tough market for trend following systems. That's where most of the losses have come from. Not maybe just this year, but perhaps in the last couple of years, it's been a tough sector for us. And I was looking at the charts. And if you look at the last five years, really in equities, what you see is that the the highest point and the lowest point in the last five years happened within three or four weeks, or maybe a couple of months. And they'd all happened in the beginning of the year. So you have this kind of long range trading environment suddenly being supplied with a big spike up and a massive spike down and then a massive reversal. So when you look at the charts and if you really try and 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 educate yourself into why trend following works and why it doesn't work, it'll be pretty clear to people why the last couple of years have been so difficult in things like equities. Now you touched upon energies as well. I wouldn't say energies has exactly the same picture because the highest point was not and the lowest point wasn't within uh, a couple of months. It's maybe more, you know, a couple of, or maybe an 18 month period from the high to the low and then the reversal. So a little bit better conditions. And I think performance reflects that. Where there has been some decent trends uh, after a four or five year period of sideways moves has been in the precious metals. So we had a bit, a lot of basing going on in, in, in gold and silver in particular is what I follow here, which were difficult at that time but then at least we had a decent break and that breakout came with some follow-through and we've seen a nice uptrend um, now some of the smaller metals we don't trade so you might have some uh, you know observations about that then we have something like the meats i mean live cattle and lean hogs which we trade and we treat them as you know as much as we trade nasdaq we have the same risk budget for for these things have been absolutely horrible if you look at the chart. I mean, not only have they been range trading, they've been range trading with a great deal of amplitude, meaning big moves in opposite direction. So that's kind of tricky. Where I find something interesting going on right now is actually when we get to the grains, because although they have been difficult and range trading for a while, you are seeing at the moment, and this could be just another you know, false breakout, but you are seeing these markets for the first time in a while starting to move up. I know, I'm sure your positions are starting to change like ours to the long side after a long period of of short positioning. But I do think it's interesting because as we've talked about so many times, trend following profits are mostly coming from the long side of trade. So if you have many markets in bear trends, it's not necessarily, at least historically, the best market environment for us. So if commodities in general are, are changing direction, and, you know, we just talked, I just mentioned the whole thing about inflation uh, from the Fed's point of view. I mean, I can see inflation coming. I know some of our global macro guests, like Cam Harvey, who's obviously deep into this, and, and I think also Lynn Alden and others, they were talking about inflation coming and possibly surprising people of how fast it can come. Which leads me to sort of the last two sectors where you at least sometimes can see inflation expectations play out. And that's fixed income where bonds have been pretty good again. But what's interesting about it when you look at the price charts, the 10-year, the 5-year, the 2-year note, it seems like the Fed has those really under control. And, and there's just very, been very few movements since March. 
Not so sure about the 30-year. That seems to be having some trouble weakening a little bit in price, and I wonder if they can really control it. And then, of course, the final sector, currencies. I think that's also where, and I, t- we, I know we talked about it with our guest on the Global Macro Series, currencies could easily be the sector. Having been a horrible sector for a long time, certainly if you trade, the uh, as we do, mainly markets against the dollar, it's been range trading for pretty much four or five years, that sector. But we are seeing signs that maybe that is coming to an end as well. And maybe some of these pressures in the global economy will actually show up in currencies. So mm-hmm. just some thoughts, uh, observations on a Friday morning. Yeah, uh, very good. I like these uh, thoughts, Niels. Thank you. Actually, with the currencies, you've mentioned the Meads have been range trading, but they've been range trading with a very big amplitude or magnitude, which hasn't been so great for us. And I agree, the currencies, from a broader perspective, they've been range-bound as well. But nevertheless, at least my systems, I was able to extract some money from these trends. Because even though they have been range-bound, there have been intermittent trends that we could follow and profit from. The euro-US dollar is actually a good example of that, right? The euro went lower last year, the year before, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, it was like to 1.02 or something like that. Uh, you know, we, did, we didn't break one. And then it started to uh, to move higher again against the dollar. So I was uh, actually able to make some money off of that. And I agree with your observation on the grains. The grains are becoming more long-sidedly positioned in my system. This is true for wheat. This is true for Kansas wheat. It's true for soybeans. It's true for corn. And yes, I mean, if slash when inflation comes, then usually those markets should benefit and continue to increase in price. Uh, so we may have an opportunity to try and follow them from the long side and make money there. So yes, it kind of like it feels like the deck of cards is being mixed with the interest rates and the bonds. I also agree. Sometimes when I look at the two year, which kind of like I think trade still positive, it's something like, you know, 10 bips, I feel like, okay, well, if something really bad happens to the equity markets, you know, you've just mentioned the NASDAQ, NASDAQ, and the S&P both having made recently new all-time highs, right? If we're going more into like maybe with the election or anything surprising coming up and equity markets uh, move lower, then maybe this is the impetus that will drive the two-year to the zero bound. So there's another 10 basis points to go, right? In which case the two-year bond would increase in price and probably the five-year and the 10-year as well. But where does it go from there? That is going to be the interesting question. Will the U.S. bond markets or the U.S. interest rates markets, the treasury interest rate markets, move into negative yield territory? Big, big, big question mark, right? Right now, our positioning there, at least my positioning, I guess yours as well, is still on the long side. I think there has been a, a you know, one or two weeks where we've actually been short some of these bonds. Uh, but I think right now I'm, I'm, I'm back really on the long side. So if something happens uh, in the equity markets, I guess, yeah, well, there's, there's a little bit of, of room still to go for these bond markets. But then... Where do we go from there? Who knows? Well, I mean, you, you you opened a lot of interesting points. One that you mentioned, the fact that you have been able to extract some profits. I think that also shows a topic that we talked about. And actually, I had to do some research on this during this week. And it is very clear to me, and I think to you as well, that this year there's been a big dispersion in terms of how you do trend following. And uh, no doubt that kind of the quote-unquote raw systems with no 
bells and whistles, um, say a simple breakout, and I don't mean simple in a negative way, by the way, if people are listening to this, I really mean just a simple breakout system, classical, maybe we should use classical as as a better word, clearly performing better, and also from a time frame point of view, these seem often more quick reacting, and then systems with maybe a little bit more um, complexity is not the word that I want to use, but things that tend to work better in the long run, but does maybe filter out a few things has not worked as well this year. And and I think that's what we see in performance of managers. Uh, We see it as well on our side. And I think you alluded to it exactly right. That trend following is obviously doesn't yield necessarily the same return. So with that said, that's, that's an interesting point, I think, for this year, trying to explain or trying to help investors understand why 2020 so far, and I really want to stress so far, because anything can happen the rest of the year in terms of performance, but so far, it's been tricky. Now, add to that something I just came across a couple of days ago was a, a webinar, actually, that our friends at Nordic Hedge did late summer, so late July where they had invited four very large, well-known funder funds to join for a conversation about CTAs. And what was really interesting and somewhat surprising to me, frankly, because I think most of these firms, at least the people who were talking about it, are invested with, I would say, the bigger managers for sure. But one of the panelists was saying that in their portfolio, I think he said that at least four of their trend followers had overridden their systems during Q1 to reduce risk. That's, you know, that's fine. But but again, overriding your system is tricky. I think let's put it that way. They also mentioned one short-term manager who had completely stopped trading for four days. And I think it raises the question which you and I talked about before we pressed record and that is, okay, so what does that really mean? And how should investors react to managers clearly not following their systems at all times? Any thoughts? Many thoughts. <laughs> the big question is, why did they do it? And did it produce a positive result? I think, you know, what I'd like to separate is maybe two thoughts here. The the manager who, you know, which shall rename unnamed that stopped trading its system slash program in its entirety for a couple of days. The rationale here that was conveyed to the market was, well, we want to live to fight another day. And what they were apparently concerned about is that because of the, the stress in the markets that they were concerned that markets would be forced closed, that there would be a closure of the markets, no trading available some problems maybe are clearing houses and they just didn't want to be involved in that this is like an extreme risk right it's at the the farther end of the risk spectrum i would say it's like this oh yes markets are going to be closed and you may not be able to trade and if i remember correctly that has been a key argument for their decision now if for trend following managers when they override their systems and they change their systems to reduce risk, which is what you've said, Niels, then I'd say, well, what what type of risk? Shouldn't that risk control, the risk management, the money management, the position sizing piece, whatever element of that you're using, shouldn't that be an integral part of your system anyways? So that, you know, when the markets trade and the way that they traded, 
your system should actually be able to cope with that and come up with the right position sizes for new trades. Or if you're doing things such as vault controlling, we're not going to get into this. Don't be, don't be worried, listeners. <laughs> You've had enough of that, I guess. But then, it, you know, it's part of the system. And there shouldn't be, unless there's like a super emergency, there shouldn't be a reason to override it. So my first question would be, why did you do it? What did you see in the markets? Or what were you concerned about in the markets that you thought your system would be ill-equipped to handle or unable to handle or, you know, have a problem with? So answer that question. And then the second question I would have, and obviously this is then always with the benefit of hindsight, but I think it is something that must be done is evaluate fairly, assess fairly and honestly whether what you have done, the override, has produced a positive impact or a negative impact. In other words, how would your system have traded in its raw and unchanged form during the period? And how does this compare to the overwritten performance? And I would add two more questions to that, because once you've done it once, I think the follow-up question is, so how many other times have you done this? Let's go back and look at your track record. How many times have you actually done this? And also, a lot of investors, even though you and I may not like the term crisis alpha, but they do put trend followers into a portfolio to have the potential of making money during a crisis. So if they're not trading or if they're not trading as much during that crisis, then they're never going to do what the investors are hoping that they will do. It's not a guarantee that they will produce performance, but at least there's a shot at, they have a shot at doing it, but they don't have a shot if they're not trading and they have less of a shot if they're reducing their risk because they feel like it. So I think it raises a lot of questions that investors need to take into account when selecting their managers. Anyways, that was one topic. The other follow-up topic I kind of came across this morning. And, and, and yes, I mean, wanna, just, just maybe yeah. a final thought on that. I mean, we call ourselves systematic investors or systematic traders for a reason. And as we've said before, you can all drill down to like even the systematic traders being discretionary traders because at some point somebody comes up with the model. And that decision-making process of which model to trade, which markets to trade, how to allocate to those markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for the most part, unless you have an AI method that does it for you, that is a discretionary decision and we evolve and we change systems over time. So that's this discretionary element. But yet still, we call ourselves systematic traders. And so this means that we are traders that once a model is in existence, we follow the model. Systematic traders are Traders who follow a trading model until the point in time when that model becomes changed or gets changed for whatever reason. But I don't think that any increase in volatility in the markets or like, you know, a 20% down move in an equity index, as we've seen earlier this year, 30% down, whatever, this is not a carte blanche excuse, oh, I'm no longer following the model. I now need to change something because, you know, we've had a drawdown in the markets. I think this is the, this is not, and I don't want to, you know, those are all large managers having much more money, running much more money than me, right? So here, little Maritz talking to them. But, you know, I don't, I wouldn't do that. It's, it's just not how I see systematic or model-driven trading work. You have that model, and I think you have to give that model the ability to prove itself during those periods of time and not interact with it and override it only because the market has become more volatile. This is, to me, 
this is not the right way of going about it. It's kind of funny you mentioned that unless you are an AI fund and your models are actually developed by some kind of computer learning things. And actually what this panel also mentioned during their conversation was, I think one of the, one of the panelists said, well, the only fund we had to close down was actually an AI fund because, of course, it hadn't learned how to deal with with a crisis like this. And I think this is kind of funny because a lot of people have gravitated towards AI as being the big a moment in finance that is going to solve all our problems and these old antiquated trend-following systems have seen uh, their best days, yet the only one that blew up during this crisis, uh, according to this fund of funds, was an AI fund, which I thought was quite, uh, <laughs> quite funny. Of course, I'm biased, but there we are. Now, the other thing I wanted to bring up, just as again as an article or piece of content I came across, I actually came across it this morning, and that is that, and, and again, I don't want to mention the name. People can figure that out themselves. But there is a very large London-based French-owned manager that has been in the news in the past. But now they're coming in the news as well, again, because they have some misallocation between the liquidity they give to their clients and the liquidity of the underlying investments, if I can put it uh, like that, without getting into too much detail here. And this is something that disturbs me uh, as part of the our industry because it's not a good idea when you see these big firms either gating their investors, meaning that they can't get out of the funds or they put some of the investments in a side pocket, which is what this particular manager is doing, where you can't get out of that part of your investment and so on and so forth. And in addition to this, the returns of these funds in questions are significantly negative for the year. So you're kind of you're removing the chance for people to vote with their feet and get out uh, if they don't like this type of investment. And I'm not really picking on them as a firm, and obviously I, I'm not going to name their name, but but I think it's a symptom of, 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 of what's happening during what I actually still think could be, you know, we're just the beginning of a much bigger crisis. I mean... We've seen 10% plus corrections in NASDAQ this week and I clearly tech stocks had to kind of finish their bull run before they can pull down the whole market, which may or may not be happening now. But another thing that happens during a crisis or in the beginning of the crisis that the things that people were just buying because they were making money, not thinking about why they were making money and what kind of instruments they were really buying, et cetera, et cetera, usually quite illiquid stuff, that suddenly becomes an issue. The other thing you could say is what we've touched upon also in the last few weeks is the fact that it seems like the world has gone crazy with call options. I mean, there's so many call options being bought to a point where I think the last number I saw that there's been options bought by smaller and maybe even some bigger managers to, to the size of about $500 billion. So we talked last week, I think, or the week before about SoftBank and how they were, quote unquote, I would say manipulating the market's not just buying stocks, but then going out and buying huge amounts of call options in in a few tech stocks to drive the um, this bull market uh, on for a few for for a bit longer. But in general, whether it's by again Dave Portnoy's army or whether it's just people in general, call options uh, has become a very popular investment. And obviously, that's great as long as the market goes up, you can make a lot of money. But when that stop, when the music stops, um, it's going to hurt very quickly. And this is something I think from memory is exactly the same kind of pattern you saw towards the end of the bull market before the tech crisis. 
So just something to be aware of. I think if you're out there and God forbid not following rules in your investments, of course, shame on you, but there we are. Some people I'm sure still do that. That's an issue. And then finally, your point about interest rates. What are people going to do with their 60-40 type of investments, which has worked brilliantly for many years, if the 40 part is not going to work going forward? All agreed. I think, you know, as we've said before, as an investor, you need to be acutely aware of the liquidity of the instruments that the manager is trading. You know, we know that because we're trading futures and in your case, Niels, Dunn is trading only very liquid and deep markets. Therefore, you know, you can trade in these markets every day. These markets are open. And if clients wanted to make a redemption from their portfolio, you would be able to honor their request and give them their money back with a little bit of notice, I guess. But it wouldn't be too much of a problem. Hence, you know, CTAs being the ATM of the market every time the market needs liquidity and needs cash. On the other hand, though, if you're investing in a manager or in products which are less liquid or not exchange traded, such as, for instance, the futures markets which we tried, then this is a different thing. We've spoken about the illiquidity premium that relates to, for instance, private equity or, you know, structured credit and these type of things where you're not observing a price on every day, where that price is not determined by a liquid and open marketplace that meets on an exchange in order to trade these products. So you get these smoother returns, right? And uh, there's interesting arguments as to why. You just, as an investor, have to be, before you make the investment, that's important, before you make the investment, aware of the fact and consider the possibility that those type of investments may become really illiquid in a crisis. Illiquid to the point that you cannot trade them and that you don't get your money back. Or that if you need to get out of them, and there has been an example earlier this year. I think, you know, here we can mention the name because it's been over the the internet and, and, and the magazines all over the place, CQS in London, right, which is a structured credit fund. They needed liquidity. And because not all of their instruments are very liquid, in fact, a large part of their portfolio is illiquid because it is structured credit, right? If you really need the liquidity and then you ask for a bid, you ask the market for a bid in a, period where everybody is scrambling for cash and everybody is scared. Well, guess where that bit is going to be? You may find somebody to trade, but that person may trade its 20 cents on the dollar with you with a massive bid offer spread in order to cover his risk of taking the other side during that period of time. So those are kind of like the, the frictions that come with these type of instruments. You know, much greater frictions and market impact and bid offer spreads than we have in terms of frictional cost when we trade the futures contracts. So what is really important is that you have to map this out with your mind as an investor before you get into these funds, that that is a possibility, right? It's within the, within the realm of possibilities that you get into a situation like that where it's so illiquid and the cost of trading is astonishingly high. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Now, let's jump to a couple of questions that we have, since we obviously don't want to take our listeners' time more than uh, where we can provide some new insights and value. So this first question comes from Daniel. Daniel, I think, all the way from Australia. We appreciate that. And by the way, if you want to send us a, a question uh, for us to uh, discuss, send it to info at toptradersonplug.com and we will do our best to give you 
an answer as soon as possible. So, so it's a long question, so I'm going to do my best to um, to get it right. So pay attention here, Moritz, because there are a lot of numbers coming at you. Suppose that you have determined that you're trading 50 diversified markets and that your maximum position risk as a percentage of AUM is 1% per market. Also suppose that you have determined that your account wants a 20% max drawdown. And in this is instance, this is defined as 20 losing trades in a row, 1% risk for 20 trades. Also suppose that you have no current positions open. If you get 20 entry signals and you have a 1% risk per trade, that's a 20% account risk that has been used. However, what happens if you get the 21st entry signal? Do you alter the position size for the 20 trades and the one new trade to be 1 21sts of the 20% account risk? So that's one question. What happens if you get entry signals for another 19 trades on top of the 21 open trades, which each get a 1 40th of the 20% risk, i.e. half a percent of AUM. And then it goes on. So I think that, the, that that's the gist of the, the questions from Daniel about sizing of positions, overall portfolio risk, et cetera, et cetera. I have my own thoughts on this, but um, let's hear from you first, Moritz, what your initial thoughts are and yeah. Too many numbers on a Friday morning. I'm not, <laughs> my, my, my head is spinning. <laughs> I, I hope I understood the core of the question. Um, but so what I would say is that because you have 50 markets, right? There's 50 markets in the portfolio. And I think the idea was here to say, well, right now I have 20 markets on and they each have 1% risk. So 1% from the entry point, there's going to be a stop or something like that. So if they all hit their stop at the same time, you're losing 20% of your capital. Well, the way I design my system, when I have 50 markets, I would say, well, they could potentially all be on at the same time and they could all have 1% risk. So therefore I could actually lose 50% of my AUM in uh, one sweep go if they all hit, you know, if diversification breaks down and if they all hit their stops at the same point in time on the same day, then that would be, boom, a gap in a single day, 50% loss, all right? So this is something to think about and therefore answer one is, or suggestion one is, is 1% the right risk per trade? question mark or maybe is that number or should that number be smaller what i do not do and this is how i understood the second part of the question with regard to the position sizing and you already have positions on and will you therefore use that information of open risk in order to change the position size of new positions i don't do that I size every position when I enter that position in the same way so that the expectation is the same so that, you know, the risk is the same for each of those trades. And I do that using the ATR, right? I know where my initial stop is going to be when I enter the position and I then back out a position size using the entry point and that ATR based stop in order to come up with a size that if the stop were hit, I have an equal loss equally distributed loss function, essentially, across all the trades in my portfolio. So if I take the 21st, the 22nd, the 23rd trade, they would be just taken in the same way as the first that you already have in the portfolio. Okay. So on top of that, uh, Daniel, I have a few other thoughts, I would say. First of all, you're making a lot of assumptions initially in your question that I'm not sure is really that relevant, meaning that just because, because you take 
you know, 1% risk on 20 markets, you you assume that, or not you assume, but you want to keep your max loss at 20%. You can't do that because you could have 50 trades in a row that loses 1%, uh, even if you don't trade more than 20 markets. So you can lose a lot more than that. So what I would do is slightly different. I would do things like what Morris suggests, but what, what the way I look at it is to say, you should run a test of your system. And you should see, say, based on, say, a 50 basis points or 25 basis points risk allocation, what is kind of the drawdowns that you've seen in the past, for the past 20 or 30 years? And then I would run what I would refer to as an open to stop risk instead. I would look at the open to stop risk because your stops are not going to be at your initial point in you know all the time, right? So you may have a, a, a say 50 basis points risk per trade, but at some point that stop is going to move either closer or it could even be further away from the current price. So you have an open to stop risk that that I think is worth monitoring. I would monitor that daily actually. That would be my Worst case scenario, as Moritz said, if I get stopped out of all of my positions today, how much am I going to lose today? So so that's a different measure than the initial risk because this takes into account how you move your stops every day. But then I would the only way to really find out whether you got the right level of risk per trade is to run a lot of simulations to see how your the markets you choose the way you get your entries and your exits, the way you move your stops, et cetera, et cetera, the way you do your risk management and so on and so forth, what would that have looked like? And let's just say for argument's sake, it said, oh, well, actually, it, it only gives me about a 20% max loss. Then I would add 50% to that just to be conservative and say, well, it may only have shown you a 20% loss in the past, in your past 20, 30 years, but you should always expect it, that it could be worse in the future. We tend to say that our worst loss is ahead of us and it may well be, hopefully not, but it could be. And and so you need to take that into account as well in, in the way you design your, your system. Niels, thank you for that. A really important point and, you know, at the risk of repeating that. But I think what you've said about the, the risk to stop at any given point in time is very important because, you know, you can have, and I'm just thinking about one of the most recent examples, we've had this massive breakout in silver, right? Really fast breakout in silver to the upside. If you're trading in a style that is, you know, similar to mine, what that means is that your open risk on that position has now become greater. To use, you know, to come back to your methodology of using 1%, the 1% initial risk has changed. Your risk is probably now no longer 1%. It may now be 5% or 3% or whatever the case, you know, it depends on how you place your stops. So you may have a couple of these positions in your portfolio that kind of like moved in the same way, right? And you, you, you have other positions that you initiate at the same time with 1% risk. But like Niels was saying, your worst one-day drop or your worst one-day loss, therefore, is now greater than, you know, the, the number of markets times the 1% risk per market that you initially allocate to that market. It can be 75% if you have a couple of these big open trade um, positions on. Cool. All right, so uh, the last question we have today is from our friend Dave. Thanks so much, Dave, for your question. Now we've moved all the way to uh, Minneapolis uh, in terms of location. So um, Dave writes, I have a question for the Systematic Investor Series. Thank you in advance for your thoughtful consideration in answering my question and for producing the interview with Roberto Osorio. So this is a couple of weeks back when I spoke with my colleague uh, as Moritz was 
on holiday that week. So after listening to episode 104 of the Systematic Investor Series with Roberto Osorio, his comments on volatility targeting really had me excited to figure out how to incorporate this into one of my breakout systems. I thought, uh, I thought, Mochi said we're not going to talk about volatility targeting today, but there we are. <laughs> Changes quickly. <laughs> my question of how to do this inspires me with a few of my own ideas, but was hoping you guys could give me a push in the right direction on this. Here is my take on one way to do this targeting. Number one, calculate the volatility of each correlation group, soft, metals, etc., etc., and baseline what is normal. For example, if the metals as a group exhibit a 1% average daily volatility over a certain time frame, and all of a sudden we start seeing 3% per day volatility of the group, is this where you'd like to consider reducing the position size in that group? Two, for markets where we'd be trading only one contract, the decision is simple, leave it alone. But if we are long two gold, two copper, two platinum, etc., how do we determine which market gets a position reduction? The market with the largest open trade equity, the market with the smallest open trade equity, the market with no open trade equity. All right, so those are the questions. We're back now on volatility targeting, Moritz. Over to you. Great. Well, fantastic. It had to be that way, right? There is no, no, there's not an episode where that doesn't come up, but it's it's all good. We appreciate it. Let me start with an example of, and this is just one way of how vol controlling or volatility targeting can work. There's different methodologies for that, but I'll explain one. So let's assume that your volatility target at the portfolio level is 10% annualized. Let's assume that you have one market. You can actually vol control one market. Let's just say we're looking at the S&P 500. I'm just trying to, let, to, to, to establish the base here. We're looking at the S&P 500 only, but we want the S&P 500 at 10% volatility. Well, how would we do that? We would calculate the historical volatility of the S&P 500, say on a daily basis. You could do it on a weekly basis, but let's in my example say we're doing that on a daily basis. Many vol control algorithms work in the way that they calculate a historical 100-day volatility. That's your long-term historical volatility. And they also calculate a historical shorter-term volatility, for instance, 20 or 25 days. Then you take the maximum of those two numbers. And let's just say, for argument's sake, that it's 20%, meaning that the historical volatility, the maximum of the 120-day historical vol is 20%. Well, but your volatility target, as we have just said, is 10%. So what that means is that you need your to cut your position that you have on the S&P 500 exactly in half because 20 is what you've realized. You're targeting 10 targets divided by realized. So 10 divided by 20 is 0.5. Cut your position in half and you will be at an expected 10% volatility. And then you repeat that every day or whatever your cycle is, right? And you would increase or decrease the position size of the S&P 500, whatever needs to be done. Now, normally people have a couple of thresholds there where they say, well, I don't want to just make an adjustment to my position if that means I'm trading one lot because you go like, you know, one lot, well, what's the point of trading one lot, right? So it needs to be, kind of like a more meaningful amount, and then you then you make the change. Now, with my example, the way you do that for one market, the S&P 500 here, you could do that for a basket of markets. And that brings us to the first part of your question, which is the sector or a group of markets. 
calculate the historical volatility of a basket, then what that implicitly includes is the correlation among the constituents of that basket. So you will find a different dynamic. It'll be a different adjustment that you will need to make then on the basket level. And a basket could as well be the entire portfolio, right? The portfolio is also a basket of just more constituents than an individual sector. So what I see in some of the, say, index-based QAS type of trend-following systems is that the first thing they do, it's a three-layered process. The first thing they do is they vault control each market on a standalone basis in the way that I've just explained it for the S&P 500. They then go on to group all the equity indices into the equity index sector, and they group all the commodities or all the energies into the energy sector. And they repeat then that same process, which means to stay with the equities, they now calculate the historical volatility of the equity basket, but the inputs are already vol controlled single assets, right? So it shouldn't deviate too much from the 10% volatility target level at the basket because we've all put them in at 10% vol, right? But it'll, it'll likely be realizing less than to 10% because the correlation between the equity indices is not one, but say 0.8 or 0.75 or whatever the case may be, which results in the fact that you will now have to increase the position size again for all of the individual equity indices in order to get the sector, the equity index sector, back to 10% of all, right? So you're kind of like correcting something in the opposite direction what you've done in the first step when you've done it on the individual market. And then thirdly, you're putting all the sectors together, and they're all vol-controlled sectors that you're now putting together into a vol-controlled portfolio. And because the sectors don't correlate by one, that again leads to a correction factor, which means you have to increase all the positions again for all markets in order to get the portfolio back to 10% volatility. But this is done, and this is probably the most common vol controlling algorithm that is applied to bank-designed vol controlled indices. There's some others out there, but in essence, most of them work in the way that I've just described. But what happens is it's done in, indiscriminately. Whether a position has open trade equity or not doesn't matter. You know, this is not part of the analysis here. Whether that position is far away from its stop, none of that stuff matters. It's as simple as I have described. And then you can ask yourself the question, and this is the question that we've brought up many, many times in this podcast, is it worth it? What do you get in return? What do you get in return for all that trading and all these adjustments to positions up and down, trading commissions, bid offer spreads, potential slippage, is the more stable volatility profile that you will get, and yes, you will get it. It will be a more stable volatility, volatility profile than my trend-following trading system. But ask yourself, is it worth it? And I guess, you know, it requires sometimes a little bit of deep thinking. We need to get Jerry back on that. I have the impression that he has some great thoughts on that as well. But at the end of the day, you have to determine that for yourself, whether you want to do it or not. Okay, so on top of that, Dave, I would add the following thoughts. First of all, I think in our world, vault control is kind of meaningless. And I want to make it very clear that when I spoke with Roberto Osorio, my colleague at Don, we don't do vault control. We do something different, and I think this is much more important. We do risk control. And I think this is actually the important part because you shouldn't really care 
in my opinion, about whether you can hit a 10% constant volatility of your trading program, certainly if you're a trend follower, because the reality is that most of our profits will be lumpy. So it actually happens when the portfolio is most volatile. That's where we make, we tend to make most of the money, I think. Of course, we can also have some losses during volatile periods of, of the performance. I'm not talking about the underlying markets necessarily. So I think we have to accept that when we tend to make money is when our positions get correlated and they tend to move, not in necessarily the same direction, but they get correlated. We make a lot of money in a short period of time. So having something that just looks indiscriminately, as, as, as Moritz says, as just keeping vol at a certain level, I actually really think that is somewhat meaningless. Even I'm sure some people who would mathematically prove that it has a benefit, I'm not too sure it does in our world. It could be in other worlds. Certainly with an index you're trying to match or something like that's a completely different story. But trend following, I don't think vol control makes sense. I do think that risk control makes a lot of sense. The thing is, it's a cousin of vol control, at least the way we do it. And because we want to have certain limits as to how much expected loss we can have in a single day. It doesn't mean that it's constant. It can be 1% one day, it can be 2% another day, but there is a max. Going back to this point we talked about just before with Daniel's question, there should be a max probably as to how much open risk if you're doing a sim system with a stop, which we're not using at, on, at our shop, but if you're using a, running a system with a stop, you probably would want to have a limit as to how much can I lose in one single day because you can do that. You can actually, or at least you have a, want to have an idea of what that number is. In our world where we um, use more continuous systems, we don't use stops per se, we can control the risk by changing position size based on changes in volatility and correlations. But if we see, let's just say for argument's sake, that our maximum daily VAR budget is 2%. If it goes above that, and let's just say it goes above that by 20%, so we have to then we have to reduce all positions by the same amount. We want to reduce, we want to shrink the overall portfolio risk. We're not looking at, as Moritz says, it has nothing to do with whether it's a profitable trade or losing trade. You want to reduce your whole risk allocation with the same amount, so you get back to your overall, say, 2% value at risk daily budget, if that's the case. Just using some random numbers here. So, again, I'm not a fan of volatility targeting. I don't think it makes any sense in our world. Who cares whether our volatility is 10% all the time or 15% at time? If we're making a lot of money, you want us to be volatile and make as much money as we can. If we're losing money, you want us actually to be very little, very have a low volatility and not lose a lot of money at the time. So static volatility to me is complete nonsense, really, in our in our world. But risk budgeting and keeping within a certain risk budget so you know what risk you're running, because the thing with trend following is we have no influence over our profits. None. Zills. But what we do control is how we take the risk. So we are risk managers first and foremost. I think a lot of people don't realize that, that that's what we spend most of our time doing is that when we design our system is, okay, let's start with the amount, the amount of risk we want to take. And actually risk management is probably, probably or arguably 
more important than whether we get in at a 20-day high or a 120-day high. I mean, risk management is key is what I'm trying to say. So so I would look at it a slightly differently, Dave, than what you proposed, but I like the idea and I'm excited for you that you're trying to work out how can you improve your model by making it a little bit more sensitive to the risks you're taking. You can do Moritz's approach. There's nothing wrong with that because he knows exactly what kind of risk he's taking and monitors that as we talked about before. But if you want to go into this more managed type risk uh, framework that we use, and it doesn't doesn't work all, all the time. Oh, it's not better. I would say it, it, it does work, but it does not necessarily means it's better all the time. Then you have to look at it more as a risk control and not vol targeting, in my opinion. I agree. I like what you said about not being able to control the returns. In fact, nobody can control returns. If anybody could control returns, well, then, you know, off to the moon. You'll be making money. Which leads me to the last point, Moritz. And that is someone else who's caught a little bit in the crossfire this week for not controlling returns so well this year, and that's Ray Dalio. I think you mentioned that article to me before we pressed record. Yeah, or or maybe controlling risk. You know, because the only thing that we can do is, or what I do is, where do I get in, where do I get out, and what's my position size? That's essentially it. What the return and what the price of that market is going to do after I've entered the trade, well, that's not in my control. That's what the market does for us. Now, with respect to Ray Dalio, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the root cause of the loss there is, but I think it's more than 20% for the uh, pure alpha. I think this is a number that I uh, I caught somewhere. And um, of course, risk parity is a thing that they're doing, which means they have a lot of bond exposure and they have equities exposure. And But I really do not know how they're risk management or the risk control framework or their position sizing framework, money management systems, how all of that stuff works. I absolutely have zero idea. But it's a significant drawdown for that fund, which has produced in years past much more stable returns. And I think that what my takeaway was from from all of that is, hey, I mean, the guy has produced 30, 40 years of great returns. The fact that they're down this year, okay, I don't think it's a sign that anything has broken. Fair point. I think you do, and that's something I think we talk about as well on on, on you know on 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 occasion. And that size, I mean, at 150 billion, then maybe that is the the issue that maybe you can't keep doing what you've done in the past at 150 billion. I think that's much more of a of a question mark to me. But any all strategies will have good periods and bad periods, and this year. And of course, this is an argument for why people should be looking, I think, more at what we do, maybe relative to risk parity and stuff like that. Because I do think the correlation between some of those components that these strategies tend to use, it's changing. And we've seen it now twice this year that during the sell-off initially in March, a lot of these assets sold off at the same time, which they're not supposed to do. We saw it in July to the opposite side, actually, where they all increased at the same time, which they no, no normally do either. So I think there's some structural questions about the strategy, and I think maybe that's what they're working on to figure out. But the fact that he's down 20% for the year, so what? I mean, he's made, I don't know how many. Yes, fair point. Percent. Fair yeah. point. Yeah. So, But it's um, interesting. Speaking of performance, 
As of Wednesday this week, of course, we are one day early, so slightly up for the Beta 50 index in September and slightly up for the year, about 30 bips uh, on both counts. Stock Gen CTA also up about quarter percent in September, still down about one and a quarter for the year. The trend following index, Stock Gen, is down fractionally in September, but up for the year. Maybe a little bit more surprising, the short-term traders index is down more, about 78 basis points in September, but it is still leading the pack up 2.3% for the year. And then we have this, speaking of Ray Dalio type stuff, Sockgen Multi Alternative Risk Premier Index, up 20 bips for the month of September, but down 13.2% for the year. So kind of in line with what we've seen from some of these big managers. MSCI World Index down about 3% as of Wednesday for the month, but still up 1% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index is up about 70 bips for the um, for the month. Any final takeaways on this Friday morning? No, not really. It's been great. I, I like the episode and uh, I hope it's going to be a good day in the markets for us today on this Friday. And um, I'm looking forward to um, doing it again next week. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a nice change to try and do it on a Friday morning instead of a Saturday afternoon. Um, but uh, anyways, as always, we are very grateful for you guys tuning in. If you have any questions, do send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. And if you do have five minutes, since we're now giving you an extra day to, uh, to do it as we're early, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review. They really help, uh, not just us, but you as well. With that, from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, have a great weekend and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.